the transport revolution surely one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century, but there are so many parts to this particular engine, just one being the full-on shift to electric vehicles. I think we need to have a real honest discussion about what the trade-offs really are. If we're just kidding ourselves saying, okay, we'll reduce carbon emissions because we're gonna to go to electric cars, but all we did was shift the source. It's not really an honest conversation. Now that's Kirk Studel, former director of the Michigan Department of Transportation. He's got a handle on the big picture of this momentous transition and what kind of timeline we should expect. Then you have this entire system, which will have some autonomous vehicles, some electric vehicles, and some legacy vehicles. And I think that transition, that's going to be a long time. Uh, that's that's going to be a messy transition. I'll bet that's um, 40 years in the making. As you can see on this podcast series, we don't hold back from the tough questions. Wow, talk about a loaded question. You got another 20 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> Here's my entire conversation with Kirk who's now with Econoline, an innovator of intelligent transportation system solutions. Kirk, thanks very much indeed for uh, uh, joining us today and welcome to our podcast. So thank you. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. It's great to see you again. So, so Kirk, you know, we want to talk about cars. We want to talk about, uh, you know, transportation. But if I was to, you know, hypothetically be standing in Detroit in, in 1922, do you know, would cars actually look that different than they do today? Wow. So 1922 in Detroit, certainly lots of cars uh, exploding all over the scene. One of the things I think it would be interesting is uh, that you wouldn't see any paint lines on the road because paint lines really didn't come in until the mid-1920s. So, so people think about, well, what we have today is what we always had. Well, not, not really, right? So 100 years ago, uh, there were these cars driving around. I, I envision a lot of times that there was a traffic engineer. That's when they were born, because there was somebody going crazy, that there was no organization to how these cars were going down this road, and they were messing up the horses. But the cars, you know, didn't look that dissimilar, did they? I mean, they, you know, they had their four wheels, they had an, an engine, you know, they, yeah. they weren't that different, were they? I would agree with that. You know, you look back in history and, and uh, it seemed like they did, uh, you know, a lot of copying of each other and, and watching and you're right. They, I mean, they all had four wheels. They had the basics. It's, it's not like the styling that we have today. Right. Where you get, you know, all this design pieces that come in and, you know, you get buyers attracted to, a, you know, the way the curves on a, on the, you know, on a vehicle look as opposed to its functionality. And, and originally it was functionality. That's what people are after. We're talking about functionality. I mean, you've spent your, you know, your life in uh, transportation and, uh, and more recently in, in, you know, in connected vehicles and, and such. Has there been a big, you know, before we move on to electric vehicles, has there been a big uh, kind of revolution, if you like, in, in that, in connected vehicles, the ability for vehicles to talk to each other, talk to the road? Uh, have we seen big changes in that? You know, so when people talk about automation, they think that this is something that's new. And frankly, there's been automation since the 1920s, right? Originally, you had to get out in front and crank the engine to start it, right? Well, now we have an automatic starter, electric starter, right? We had used to have manual transmissions, and now we have automatic transmissions. You have automated windows, right? You have windows now that you touch with one button, and it goes all the way down. You have headlights. Some of us remember having to find that little foot pedal on the floor to dim the headlights. Well, then they moved to the steering wheel, and then now they do it automatically, so automation has been coming ever since the first car was invented. But what's happening is the speed of innovation and the speed of automation 
are accelerating. And, and the new features, the new things that are coming in are coming in at a much faster rate than, you know, maybe it was decades between innovations, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. And, and now we're seeing, you know, one cycle, you know, three years, and even the next year, there's additional features that are coming out that, that are making cars safer. They're making, um, frankly, many times more fun to drive, uh, and they're making them easier to drive. What are some of the biggest innovations that we currently have, currently enjoy in cars? If you've never driven a car with uh, adaptive cruise control, I would encourage you to do that. Because once you drive a car with adaptive cruise control, you'll, you won't buy another one that doesn't have adaptive cruise control. I have, I have two cars. One has adaptive cruise control. One doesn't. After driving the adaptive cruise control, I find myself having to really think when I'm using the car with the regular cruise control because I'm going to run into somebody. <laughs> so, so I mean, that's that's one that I think once you're used to the technology, you really start depending on it. The other one is the navigation systems that are there, right? The navigation systems, if you buy a 10-year-old car, yeah, there's a navigation system on, but it's it was pretty rudimentary when you look at it now. At that point in time, it was really... Uh, market breaking and 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 barrier busting as to what you could actually see in the car and the car was connected to this this map and and it knew where it was and it knew where we wanted to go of course everybody has a story of them driving somewhere where the map was old and all of a sudden you know the map is trying to take them through the middle of a of a lake or a pond right <laughs> in those early days and and now you have the ones where if you're in a developing area, all of a sudden your map is outdated because you're driving in what used to be a field and right. it's now a subdivision of homes. Talking a little bit about uh, about electric vehicles, I mean, and, and full disclosure, you know, I drive one myself, but do you think, uh, do you think uh, so much excitement about electric vehicles, but do you think that the reality lives up to the hype? You know, it's it's really been interesting to watch because probably 10 years ago, I remember the announcement that came out of hybrid cars, and, and it was a front page news story on the Detroit News of, of these large SUVs that uh, were going to be hybrids. And I remember taking it to our leadership team and said, okay, this is going to be a financial problem for us because transportation is funded by the consumption of motor fuels. Right. So it inherently doesn't like efficient vehicles. Now, that's a the societal political problem that we have to deal with is that the older vehicles that use a lot of, of fuel actually produce more revenue to take care of roads. So 10 years ago, this, you know, this announcement of all these SUVs that are going to get double or triple the, the estimated mileage, well, that was going to be a direct impact to that revenue stream. So at that same time, there was this discussion of electric vehicles. And then you fast forward and they start gaining a little traction. And I remember in one of the political debates we were having about raising the gas tax was, well, what do we do about electric vehicles? Well, at that point in time, there was 1%. 1% of the vehicles on the road were electric. And uh, so there was a big push to say, well, don't put extra fees on them because that'll disincentivize them. And I stood up and said, but who's going to plow the snow in front of that electric vehicle. It better have some big knobby tires because there's no funds to pay for this snowplow. You know, just the fundamentals. And at that point in time, there was a recognition and said, okay, we need to put in some form of extra road user fee for electric vehicles so that it can pay for its ongoing maintenance and, you know, snow removal. So now fast forward, we're still at a low percentage, but when you have automakers saying that by 2020, 
25, 26, by 35, all they're going to do is produce electric vehicles. Okay, that's, uh, there's going to be an increased amount, but there's still hundreds of millions of vehicles on the road that are going to be using petroleum for, for quite a while. You know, it takes 10 to 12 to 14 years for the fleet to turn over. And, and what we saw with the cash for guzzlers or the stimulus in the 2009 and 10, when you get the gas guzzling cars off the road and get more fuel efficient ones, well, that accelerated some of that purchasing, but it still was 10 plus years. I mean, I'm a good example. I have a I have a vehicle at home that is uh, nine years old. I, I don't intend to get rid of it anytime soon. It's paid for. It does what it needs to do. I can envision it. I'll have that car for another five or eight years. Doesn't get driven much. So I think this transition is going to be a little slower until there is really a cost point where the average person can go out and buy one and it's comparable in price and features and the range. Uh, and then it's going to accelerate faster. And I have no doubt. I mean, I, I'm seeing examples now of of researchers that are extending that range. There was just one that was done in Michigan where they went uh, way to the upper peninsula of Michigan and, and uh, came back on one charge. Well, that's very significant. It's really interesting what you say, though, isn't it? And I, I find what you say there fascinating because we are in a transition period, and and you know there are a lot of issues within that transition period. I mean, you you alluded to one there, like who pays for the roads? You know, if uh, more and more electric cars, we're encouraging electric cars for environmental purposes, but uh, do we move to some form of uh, road pricing? How do we actually pay for the roads? Because as you say, that period of that transition is going to be longer. You know, you can see it now with oil, price of oil being high and uh, because of the demand for oil being high and, and you know, there not being as much exploration, etc. So, I mean, how do you think we'll pay for roads? So I think at some point it's going to have to get to a true user base, right? If However much you use it, I mean, that's what fuel is, right? The more fuel you use, the more you pay because right. you're using up the road. So I think there's, it's got to be connected to something about how you use because you know, at the end of the day, you can't just do a flat fee for everybody because you know, the person that drives 2,000 miles a year is paying an exorbitant fee for the person that drives 40,000 miles a year. Right. So I, I think it, it's going to be a very interesting political debate to uh, iron this out. And frankly, we've seen this coming. We knew it was coming. Uh, a lot of people didn't want to acknowledge that it was coming. But it's here. So back to your earlier question, I think that's going to be a bigger issue is, is when and how do we start transitioning and what does it look like? And, and when you start introducing this new fee, then the anti-tax people will come out and say, oh, you know, no new fees. You, you already have that on gas tax and not listen to the rest of the conversation that says, but the method of which we are collecting a road user fee is changing. Right. What about infrastructure? I mean, you know, if you're going to have electric cars, you've got to be able to charge them, right? And I know the infrastructure bill, you know, that's President Biden that's got money in there for uh, infrastructure. But I know from my own experience, it's uh, it's woefully lacking. Yeah, it, I was thinking of exactly that as you were talking about that rollout is that that's the other piece, right? And, and actually, there's two components to that. It's where's the infrastructure at? And the second is the power and the ability to feed that infrastructure. And is that actually strong enough? Is it robust enough? Right. You know, does the the power grid actually support having an extra 
2 million or 20 million vehicles a year being plugged into it. And, and everybody says, yeah, you can, you know, it's at night. It's, but well, okay, but we see it now when, when the weather's really hot and everybody's trying to run their air conditioning, that right. we tax the system. Well, if you're trying to run your air conditioning and you're trying to charge your car, there's going to have to be some technology that says, okay, what has the priority here? Otherwise, we're going to end up with rolling brownouts or, or whatever. And, and that's a piece that nobody's really talking about. They're saying, oh yeah, we'll, we'll be able to deal with that. And I'd like to see us have a more robust conversation about how is that happening? And then frankly, from an environmental perspective, are we just shifting the emissions from the tailpipe to the, the electric, electric plant, right? And in some cases, no, it's going to a new form of energy and that's great. But I think we need to have a real honest discussion about what the trade-offs really are. If we're just kidding ourselves saying, okay, we'll reduce carbon emissions because we're going to go to electric cars, but all we did was shift the source. It's not really an honest conversation. But then you get to the, the infrastructure side. Where are the charging stations, right? right. Uh, and, and I think that's the biggest concern. All of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of electric cars and there's no charging station. Or you get to some and they're broken. Sure. One other aspect of that that interests me, and I, you know, obviously Detroit Motor City, you know, you has been and very much the heart of the uh, industry. And I know as well that uh, Ford and and uh, General Motors have been making a lot of pronouncements, as you say, about uh, electric cars, future of electric cars, investments in. From a social point of view, do you think uh, Detroit maintains that position as electric cars become you know more uh, more readily available when you've got you know leadership in the market from Tesla and from various other makers does does it start to lose its position i think the position changes right uh and i think it'll be a recognition that uh, tesla is is you know has some leading technology in in um, electric vehicles i think the advancements from Ford, General Motors, Stellantis, they've got very large R&D budgets that they can throw behind it to actually make it happen. And then I think, frankly, that's where the production happens, right? Because they're producing you know, tens of millions of vehicles instead of thousands of vehicles or you know, tens of thousands. That's where the real production happens. And frankly, that goes back to 100 years ago when, when Henry Ford figured out this assembly line on how to mass produce. Right. So, right. so I think there's, that's always going to be there. What's really interesting is the innovation centers. And, and if we can go back a minute to the infrastructure, one of the things that was just announced was uh, Michigan announced a, a one mile in-road charging uh, that would be right. you know, dynamic charging as you're going down the road with, right. uh, with a company. And I think that's a potential game changer as well. But then that ties into this whole discussion about funding. Okay. Right. How do you pay for that? And where's the power come from to do that? And then if you're getting power from that into your vehicle, do you pay for that or is it free? Well, nothing's free. Uh, you know, somebody paid for it somewhere. Right. Can we talk a little bit about autonomous vehicles? I mean, everybody gets super excited about uh, autonomous vehicles, but uh, reality seems is that we're not there yet, are we? And, and you know, one of the things we've found in this series is the problem with technology is when it actually interacts with us human beings who kind of, you know, don't play very well with it necessarily. Where do you think we are currently with autonomous vehicles? You know, I think there's a lot of great strides that are being made, but I think you hit one of the, the biggest points. You know, an autonomous vehicle dealing with another autonomous vehicle, they each know the rules and they know how to follow them. But you put in a human and humans are very unpredictable. 
Now, some of our AI friends or machine learning friends would say, yeah, not really. We, we actually know what a human will do, but there's still a, a, an element of unpredictability. So I think the technology is advancing very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. I've been following some of the advancements in automated trucking, uh, which are really, really uh, interesting. You know, distribution center to distribution center, you know, completely uh, driverless, full-size semi-truck. Uh, that, that I think has the ability to change a lot. Now, that's a piece that, frankly, from a safety perspective, scares me the most. Right. Uh, because there's an 80,000-pound truck going down the road with nobody in it, and the technology it, you know, is will react and take care of itself. But at the same time, we're, we're not comfortable with a car doing that, a 4,000-pound car. So there's a public disconnect here that I think we're going to have to and I think we will probably confront it, I think, in the next three or four years, because this technology is moving very, very rapidly. I mean, I'm really impressed with the developers of that and, and what they've been able to do and how they've been able to push it out. I think our next key, though, is how do we make sure that as we develop something, it's accessible to everybody? You know, right. it doesn't just fit into one spot. It's, you know, it's an equitable distribution of the technologies to the haves and the have-nots. Absolutely. And that does actually kind of bring me to almost to dissect that answer into two, if you don't mind, actually, because uh, it's really interesting. So the first point I'd like to pick you up on is the technology and the fact that uh, you're saying, you know, it's moving at a rapid pace. It's really interesting because when you look at something like artificial intelligence, you know, you get uh, a lot of advancement, but you get the idea that uh, artificial intelligence per se isn't there. So you have a lot of machine learning, you have a lot of ability to do functions, but you don't have true artificial intelligence. A lot of argumentation as to whether, you know, you kind of ever will, and you're just, this is a, you know, intermediate point. And you you raised a really interesting point about uh, the electric vehicles and the time that it takes to transist from one to another, and that might be a while. Do you think when it comes to autonomous vehicles that we will get there within a reasonable time frame or is this another where you know we're likely to be trapped in the middle for you know for quite a period of time so two answers to that one i think if you separate just the autonomous vehicle i mean we have autonomous shuttles that are running now sure uh, you know we have the truck piece i think that's going to come along i think the public acceptance is going to be a little slower but then you have this entire system which will have some autonomous vehicles, some electric vehicles, and some legacy vehicles. And I think that transition, that's going to be a long time. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's going to be a messy transition. I'll bet that's um, 40 years in the making. And that's a fascinating point because the whole the whole way that you regulate that, the whole economics of that, how things get funded and, and where people make money out of all that is just is just so messy. And yeah. that in of itself is is very interesting. Can I pick you up on another point that you made there, which again fascinates me, this whole issue of equity. Mm-hmm. What do you think some of the issues are that we need to address? You know, the equity discussion is really taking off across all of the aspects of transportation, right? It's it's equitable transportation for everybody in every community. It's not just the community members that show up at a meeting, right? It's how do we make it equitable for all points of society? So I think it really delves into the transportation planners, the city officials, uh, really working together to make sure that the focus isn't about the technology. The focus has to be about mobility, 
and, and providing equitable mobility for all citizens, no matter where they're at. If you happen to be in an area that doesn't have a lot of car ownership, well, then there needs to be some other equitable form of moving around. You know, do we have streets that are designed for people, you know, pedestrians and cyclists? And are they sharing the road? Are they, and again, the focus comes back to thinking about how people move and making sure that it's equitable in all areas. And, and even from a vehicle perspective, what happens typically right now is, you know, the hand-me-down vehicles, the used vehicles, you know, get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And then the people on the lowest end of the socioeconomic scale end up purchasing those. Well, those are the least fuel efficient. They're the most costly to maintain. And, and we've really disadvantaged them again. So we just have to think about how do we deploy that? And, and that's where I, I think if an auto company comes up with a vehicle that is, you know, in a nice price point that the mass of society can purchase it, then I think we'll see it take off. Let me ask you just a, a slight uh, sidebar to that question, because I know your own, you know, your own company has been very involved in this. I, I was at the Intelligent Transport Systems Conference in December, and there was a lot of talk about uh, mobility XX at the conference. How important do you think uh, gender equity is within the transportation business, and, and and how do we get there? How do we how do we achieve those goals? I think it has to start very early, right? We we have to attract any and all. Uh, interested parties into transportation. I mean, it's been primarily dominated by white males. And and frankly, when I was in school 40 years ago, if I looked at my class of uh, engineering patrons, it was, you know, 10% women, 90% men. So it has to start there. And frankly, in order to start there, we have to start back in middle school. We have to start encouraging the interaction of uh, middle school underrepresented groups right now. Uh, and we have to get them interested in math and science and then keep them in math and science through high school and into college to get them into these fields. And, you know, you you can't take somebody mid-career and just jam them in the middle. If we're really looking for long-term sustainability, we have to start growing it at that level. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do efforts in the middle to pull people in. We absolutely should. But if we want a real sea change, it's got to start way back in elementary school. We start increasing the feeder system into math and science. Kirk, my, my last question would be, you know, we covered a lot of ground and you raised some really interesting points how do you see the next 10 years uh, rolling out? What do you think some of the major changes or innovations we're going to see in that time frame? Wow. Talk about a loaded question. You got another 20 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, I'm doing a project for Ashto right now on uh, the vision of transportation 10 to 20 years out. And then what does the State Department of Transportation look like and how do they function? So I've had the opportunity of interviewing about 20 state CEOs uh, in the last couple of weeks with that exact question. And, right. and what's interesting is the answers uh, are are kind of all over the board, right? Nobody really knows, but I can tell you that primarily people are understanding that transportation isn't all about a road and a bridge. Transportation is about mobility. And I think that's the focus that's going to change. And it's mobility that has so many other spinoffs. It's the spinoff to public health, right? It's providing a mobility options for people that increase their public health. It's a mobility system that's recognizing uh, resilience, whether it's from environmental events or pandemics or, or whatever. It's, it's a resilient system, a resilient mobility that people still have the ability to move around. 
And then it's on the impacts of climate change and what is happening and and how do things get adapted. And again, it goes back to uh, mobility. I think the biggest change is going to be the focus is less on hardcore engineering and more on the soft side about how transportation impacts and interacts with society and how it becomes an enabler instead of what many people think of as, oh, transportation is the center of the world. No, it's just a piece of the world. And, uh, and, and we need to really figure out how it enhances the world. Uh, and it becomes one of those features that's in the background that people don't even recognize because it's running so efficient and people can get from wherever they're at to wherever they want to go without any big disruption or their package can get there, right? Amazon will deliver it the next day. You know, I think the supply chain issues have really shown the public how the transportation system works and they're dissatisfied that their packages are not coming the next day. Okay, thanks ever so much. Thank you very much indeed for uh, going through that with us today. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was great. Happy to be on. Continuing on this theme of transitions, it's a similar story in the energy sector, where the timescales of change remain the sticking point. We have that aspirational track where, yeah, we'd like to be in this Star Trek-like world where we have these futuristic technologies, where we're running off hydrogen, where the byproducts are clean water and oxygen, but we're not there. Tune in for our final episode of the Innovations Uncovered series, this time with our guest, Dr. Liz Dennett, host of the Horizons podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Stephen Horn, and you're listening to On the Edge.